0: All right, well, uh, tonight we are, um, as I said this morning, coming to uh, the last section on um, how to read uh, the Bible. Um, This section will be on prophecy. We'll have um, a few uh, different parts to it. This is where we'll look at things like typology and um, apocalyptic uh, literature as well. Uh, but we're looking at the, the broad category of, of prophecy, and um, tonight's really sort of, a, sort of an introduction um, to it. Now, I think uh, when we think in the broader evangelical world, um, prophecy is something that can bring all kinds of different ideas and images to mind. Uh, for some, it... Uh, could be something. It's, it's it's a picture of, you know, just a, a doomsday preacher, right? Somebody who's a, maybe standing outside, and he's got a sign that says, you're all going to hell, and uh, he's just, you know, preaching that, that one message, and that's it, right? It's just uh, doom and gloom, and, and that's it, and that's a, that's a man who's a, who's a true prophet. I think for others, it, it reminds them of um, preachers and teachers who approach various parts of scripture, of course, uh, the Old Testament being uh, chief here and the the prophets being chief, but uh, it conjures up in their minds um, predictions, right? Somebody who's trying to figure out the secret codes within the Bible, uh, everything that scripture says in the Old Testament, all that the prophets say, you know they're, they're speaking in sort of code language and, and you need to sort of figure out what that code is. You, you need to recognize that every single thing that they speak of has to do with something that's gonna happen in the, the far off future from their day and within the next five minutes from, from our you know, vantage point. And as long as you've got somebody that can decode uh, those, uh, those secret messages, then you can, you can understand how the world is working. Uh, I think probably maybe uh, some, maybe if, uh, all of you, you may be familiar with uh, Harold Camping, right? He's a so-called uh, Bible teacher uh, for, for many years, actually had a radio program. And um, you know, he took, he took this sort of approach to Bible interpretation and prophecy as. Uh, it, it sets out, you know, if you, if you understand it properly, it sets out the exact time and date when Jesus will, will return again. The prophets knew very specifically when he was going to come. And he famously predicted that the world would come to an end and that Jesus would return on October 21st, 2011. Right. So we are uh, we're past that date, right? That <laughs> one that one didn't exactly work out. Uh, but you know, the problem with, with camping is, is the same problem as, as many um, approach, uh, uh, many uh, who, who have an approach to, to Bible prophecy, they, they read prophecy as if everything is about uh, future events that take place in our own day. Um, it comes to mind as well, there was um, there's another teacher, his name is escaping me, I think it's Jonathan something, but he has a real popular book that's been out for quite some time called The Harbinger. And um, I've, I've, I've heard several questions over the years about this book because, you know, according to uh, this book, it, Isaiah was talking about the events of September 11th and the falling of uh, the Twin Towers, you know. Um, and often, what, what, what these uh, what these teachers do is they'll they'll kind of go in, they'll find some image, maybe of uh, you know two trees or of two buildings or something like that, and it goes, oh, you yeah, know, that, that was talking about the twin towers there, you know, clearly. Um, you've got all of these different uh, approaches to prophecy. Uh, many of them, in the more popular world, um, taking a an almost exclusively futuristic interpretation of prophecy. And uh, so we have, these, we have these different ideas, these different images, and uh, so we have to ask the question, and we have to search the scriptures to see um, what prophecy actually is. Um, what, what is the ministry of the prophets actually uh, characterized by, right? Is it, uh, is it just sort of descriptions of things that'll come into the distant future, or is it even more than that? And uh, tonight, I want to just briefly uh, look at some passages of scripture, define what prophecy is, and uh, then just give some general guidelines for interpreting prophecy. And uh, then the next time we, we gather together, we'll, we'll go into some more details on, on some of these uh, elements and um, some of the language of the prophets, too, how they use patterns and types to speak about uh, events that are to come uh, in the future. So, I'm going to start uh, first of all by addressing the question of what, what is a prophet? What is uh, a prophet? And a prophet is very simply someone who is uniquely called out and sent by God to deliver a message from God. Somebody, again, who is specifically and uniquely called out by God, given the very words of God, and they are told to proclaim those words or even to write those words down accurately. It is not, and we'll see this in a moment, the calling of the prophet is not some feeling. It's not an internal emotion where you think you may have a word from the Lord. No, it is a direct calling out from God Himself for you, the prophet, to deliver His message as He wants it delivered. Now, we can see this in several places in Scripture. I want you to turn with me, first of all, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, and uh, here we can see the calling of Jeremiah as a prophet, Jeremiah chapter 1, and uh, we'll we'll read from verses uh, 4 down to verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 1. And we read beginning in verse 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now let me just stop there and say, again, this is not some internal thought. That Jeremiah is having. This is the word of God audibly coming to him. He hears this, right? And then it goes on and, and he responds. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth, right? So he is replying to very specific words that he's heard from the Lord. And he feels unequipped to be the prophet of God. But then the Lord says in verse 7, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. So notice there, first of all, the prophet is sent to specific people, or in this case as well, to specific nations. The Lord himself directs that prophet to go to specific people. You can think as well about Jonah, right? Go to Nineveh and you say what I want you to say, right? So the prophet is sent by God himself, and whatever God gives to him to say, that exact revelation is what the prophet is to say. He is not to make anything up. He is not to take a guess at what the Lord may be inclining him to say. No, he's given a specific revelation to speak. Verse 9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This, This is sort of the characteristic of Jeremiah's ministry. He's going to be saying some things that people really don't like. He's going to be delivering words from God that are, in a very real sense, destructive. They will bring about judgment that will fall against the people of Jerusalem and even other Nations. He's going to utter the words of God, and when those words are spoken, they can't be revoked. So, in a very real sense, they are destructive words because they will bring about judgment. But of course, he's also, he's not only a preacher of coming judgment, he's also a preacher of, of promises. Of course, Jeremiah 31 is one of the, you know, the, the sweetest passages in the Old Testament where it's pro- we, we are promised the, uh, the new covenant to come. And of course, that comes in the midst of announcements about judgment, right? In that case, he's, he's building up. He's giving something for the people of Israel to hope in, right? So, so again, he's given a very clear message. He has to deliver that message as he receives it from the Lord, and it will have uh, two main characteristics, Both to tear down and to build up. Now we see something similar uh, going backwards um, to uh, with the office, or excuse me, with the uh, the person of Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3 and and his calling in particular. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 3, this is where um, Samuel is called. We won't won't read everything uh, that is here. Um, but of course, 1 Samuel chapter 3 describes the calling of Samuel as a, a young boy. And uh, at this point in his life, he's, he's in the temple, he's serving with Eli, and, and there comes a moment, you can, you can see um, as, as well in, in verse 1, um, that prophecy had not altogether vanished, but there was a period of time where there were not words of the Lord coming left and right. Notice it says in, in verse one, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Uh, just as just chapter before, we, we do read of a man of God, a, a prophet who comes and announces a judgment against Eli's house. But the, the general characteristic of this time is that prophecy was by and large, just totally absent until the calling of Samuel, and throughout chapter 3, you know, we're, we're told Samuel, he's, he's in the temple, and, uh, and then he hears a voice, uh, the voice of God calling to him, Samuel, Samuel, and when he hears it, he, he turns to Eli and he says, you know, what, here I am, and Eli's looking at him and what? why did why, why, you say here I am, I didn't say anything, because right? Eli's not speaking, Samuel is hearing the voice of God, but there's, there's nobody around. So he's thinking this this is Eli. Eli tells him, go back to sleep. I I didn't say anything to do. You know, you're, you're hearing things. Then he hears it again. Samuel, Samuel. He says, here I am again, speaking to, to Eli. And again, the second occasion, Eli is like, what, what, what are you hearing? I'm not speaking to you. Again, just notice, this is a Real voice of God that he's hearing. Samuel tells him, in essence, he thinks now the Lord is speaking to him. So next time he needs to say, You know, here I am, Lord. And that's what happens. He goes back to sleep. The Lord calls him again, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, Here I am, Lord. And then the Lord gives him a message, just like Jeremiah, gives him a very specific message to deliver. And he delivers this, he is supposed to deliver this to Eli. We won't won't read this, this whole section, but basically beginning from verse 11 down to about verse 14, this is the message that God gives to Samuel to deliver against Eli and his house because of Eli's son's sins and defiling the temple and blaspheming God. One of the things you can see in verse 12, the message of God through Samuel to Eli that on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I'm bringing judgment against Eli's house. I'm stripping him of the priesthood and his sons are going to die. That's the specific message, right? Again, it's not an intuition or anything, it's a message. And Samuel initially doesn't really want to deliver it to Eli. And Eli tells him, yep, tell me what the Lord said to you. And then he delivers that message exactly to Eli. So you see here, again, the Lord specifically, by the word of the Lord, calling Samuel and giving him a specific message to deliver to others. He is being sent to others. One other example, of course, uh, is Moses going back further. Moses in Exodus 3, of course, he's at this time, um, he is, um, in a sense, exiled um, from from Egypt. He's He's in Midian. He makes his way with his sheep to the mountain of Horeb, and it is there that the Lord, through the angel of the Lord, appears to him in the burning bush, and God calls Moses in the same way. He speaks from the bush, and he says, Moses, Moses, and Moses responds, here I am. This is a constant pattern we see through many of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. The Lord calls them by name. Samuel, Samuel. Moses, Moses. The prophet then responds, here I am, Lord. And then God gives him a specific message to deliver to Pharaoh. He tells him that he's going to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt and pronounce judgments against Pharaoh. And like the other later prophets that we see, when Moses receives this message and is called to be a prophet, he's wondering, Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Who am I? he feels incompetent. I can't speak. I don't have any abilities to do this. Just like Jeremiah. I'm I'm too young. There's a a hesitancy there. And yet the Lord still calls him to carry out his prophetic ministry and to deliver his word. So you see all all that is a You see a, a pattern over and over again where Specific individuals are called to deliver specific messages to specific people, and and oftentimes they involve both uh, warnings of judgment and promises of, of good things to come as well. So a prophet, someone is uniquely and specially called by God to deliver the exact words of God. Now, the divine message that a prophet is given can be a range of things. So one thing that it could be uh, or that that it could entail is an actual foretelling of future events. This, This is an aspect of prophetic ministry to speak of specific events things that are about to come upon God's people in the future. That's one part. We see this all over the place, but I'll I'll point just to one example. This is in the New Testament in Acts chapter 11 and uh, verses 27 to 30. This is the prophecy of a coming famine that is delivered by Agabus, a New Testament prophet, and Forms the basis for which Paul is going to go around to the various churches that have been planted, and he's going to—I um, uh, wouldn't say raise money, but gather gather uh, resources to support the Jerusalem Church when the famine hits. Acts chapter eleven, beginning in verse twenty-seven to 30, we read this. It says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Right? This, is a, this is just a, a clear example of the prophet foretelling something. Right? In the future, this is going to happen. Now we need to live on, on the basis of this, this word from God. Again, not an intuition, but a foretelling of something that is going to happen in the future. So prophecy can involve foretelling of events. And again, we see this all throughout the Old Testament prophets as well. They were were often announcing, uh, many times, uh, judgments that are going to come in in the near future. Uh, But that would be an example of the foretelling aspect of a prophet's ministry. Uh, Another aspect of a prophet's ministry would be the interpretation of dreams. Um, We have several examples of this throughout uh, scripture. Daniel chapter 2 is uh, one very, very well-known one. Jan, uh, Daniel chapter 2, and this is, of course, um, where Daniel, uh, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar has uh, has been having this recurring dream, and he doesn't know what it means. And, and he he needs wise men, he thinks, to interpret this dream for him. He's He's getting this dream of this image, this image of a man who's got like a a golden head and silver arms and silver chest, and uh, if I remember right, the the torso was bronze, and then the the further you get down, his feet are made of iron and clay, right, There's, there's a mixture at the bottom, and then he sees this stone that just shatters the whole thing, and and, uh, you know, it's blown away by, by the dust. And he doesn't know what this means. And he wants to know what, what this means. He keeps having this dream. So he, he sends for all of the, the wise men throughout his empire to tell him. None of them know what it, what it means. And they're all telling him, nobody can know what it means. And so now Nebuchadnezzar just wants to kill all of them. Like they're, they're all worthless, you know. <laughs> you are not good. You're not good for me anymore. So, so I'm going to kill you all. And uh word eventually comes to, to Daniel. Daniel says, you know, he can interpret the dream for him, and that's, that's what happens. He comes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he explains the meaning of the dream. Again, something like a Joseph. Joseph does this, too, in uh, the book of Genesis. And what does Daniel say? I mean, he, he explains that this, this dream that he's having is about these, these kingdoms that are going uh, to come. They're going to be kingdoms that are are going going to be uh, weaker than the present Babylonian kingdom. They're going to have all sorts of splits and divisions, but he's basically recounting the the rise of the Persian empire, followed by the rise of the uh, empire of, of Greece, followed by the rise of the Roman empire, at which point the kingdom of God smashes them all. This is, this is the, uh, the rock, if you will, that, that comes from heaven and just smashes them all and the kingdom of God becomes established as the king o- or the kingdom over all of these various kingdoms, which of course refers to Christ and the establishing of... His kingdom, the building of his kingdom, the expansion of his kingdom and its sovereignty over all others. But this is just to say, this is one of the things that you see prophets doing as well. They they will interpret dreams and give their prophetic meaning. However, their message is not always about telling things that are going to come in the future. The message may also simply be A call to repent with no predictive element at all. Now, we're going to look at this uh, some more probably in the the week after next, but the prophets also served as, as what we might call covenant enforcers. They are those who are preaching the law and who are warning God's covenant people That if you don't stop breaking the law, the curses of the covenant are going to come upon you and and destroy you. And of course, they do this in a variety of ways, using a variety of different images. but, But that's one of the things that they're doing, is they're bringing people back to the Mosaic covenant, calling them to submit themselves to it, and warning them that if they don't, they will perish under it. You can see just one example of this from Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, and uh, we'll look briefly at uh, verses 2 to 4. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, Hear, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation! A people laden with iniquity! Offspring of evildoers! Children who deal corruptly! They have forsaken the Lord! They have despised the Holy One of Israel! They are utterly estranged. Now you can see here, there's no... There's no predictive element here. He is not speaking about anything that is to come into the future. He is speaking about the present state of Israel. And their present state is that they've forsaken their covenant God. They, they've abandoned him and they've turned to idolatry, right? So he, prophet Isaiah, he is, he is, his prophetic ministry at this point, or the message at this point, is calling them to stop breaking the law and forsaking God, and to return back to Him. So so that's that's another element to the ministry of the prophets, is that they were preachers of the Mosaic Covenant, calling people to repentance, calling people to bring themselves under the law, and promising blessings to come if they do, and curses if they don't. So, prophet is a messenger, again, sent by God to deliver his word, and that message that he delivers can have a uh, variety of functions, right? It can be speaking about things that are to come in the near future, in the distant future, or calls to repentance presently. Right? Now, just uh, briefly, some guidelines for interpreting prophecy. I'm going to go through these uh, fairly quickly, for the sake of time, and, uh, and we'll revisit these in, in the coming weeks as well. So some guidelines for interpreting prophecy. One, this is a fairly obviously one, uh, obvious one. Um, we've been reiterating this on, on all the genres, but investigate the prophetic book's background, date, author, and context, right? Get the historical context of the prophecy. Like any book in Scripture, the prophets were not speaking to an undefined group of people, right? They're not just putting words in the air and hoping that somebody in 2000 years is going to, you know, grab onto it and go, oh yeah, that's, that's us right now, right? They are speaking to specific people at a specific time. This helps us to understand the various situations that are being addressed. So for example, um, if you're reading in the book of Isaiah, you're reading through Isaiah 36 to 39, there's a prophecy that is there given to uh, the king Hezekiah, and it's helpful to get some background information on that particular section of Isaiah by going to 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where you get some insight in the conflict that is uh, presently taking place between Hezekiah and uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and and what's taking place there. And Isaiah is speaking specifically to that situation, right? So you're understanding the background on that occasion. Uh, Prophets are, uh, as I said, speaking to real people at real times about real events in their days. Now, having said that, They also deliver warnings and promises about events to take place in the future that have abiding relevance for the people in the present, right? So again, just because they are speaking to specific people at specific times doesn't mean that every future prophecy that they deliver has no relevance for the present people uh, at all. For example, Jeremiah 31, God promises the new covenant through Jeremiah to a people who are presently being exiled, who are presently coming under the judgments of God. That promise will not be fulfilled for another 580 some odd years, right? It has no immediate fulfillment for the people in that present day. But it is given to them at that time so that in the midst of the judgments they are coming under, they can still trust in and hope in the Lord. He is not utterly abandoning them. Right? So it, it, is, it is given to them to... to probably in in many cases, to actually give faith or to encourage faith to exist in the first place and to strengthen the faith of those uh, who do believe in the Lord. Uh, The New Testament, of course, does this as well. Uh, Paul, for example, uh, you'll know, encourages the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead and what will take place at that time of the resurrection. And this is a promise that is given to the Thessalonians that of course they were still waiting for and we are still waiting for, but it is intended to encourage us all the more to trust in him now. Just because we die now, not having seen the return of the Lord, does not mean we will miss out on the resurrection. God will keep his promises. Now, just to to get some background information about some of these prophets, of course, just some some helpful tools. Good study Bibles are always helpful. Right? They give you a little, little information about the historical context, some of the things that are going on in the world nationally at that time. Introductions to the Old Testament. Um, If I could commend one, Bruce Walkie's Introduction to the Old Testament is probably one of the best ones. Uh, But that can give you uh, really helpful information for uh, understanding some of the situations um, that the prophets are addressing. Uh, Number two, another guideline. Just like uh, poetry, expect figurative language expect figurative language. Most, most of what the prophets write is written in poetry. And so you have to expect that, that figurative uh, language to be present. Um, I think one of the, one of the problems with the interpretation of much prophecy today, especially when you get into all these, you know, wild theories and date setting and, and, and all of that—that that much of what the prophets say is often interpreted way too literally. Right? Um, we want to we want to re, we want to interpret and understand things literally, all things literally, as they are intended to be understood. Right? So, if there's metaphor that's being used, we, we understand what that metaphor is. If if there is, again patterns and and types that are being used to communicate things about the future. We want to understand what that language, what the the pictures that the language is uh, painting for us means. Again, in prophecy, there is lots of poetry, lots of hyperbole, and of course, even even parables. Um, Isaiah chapter five, of course, gives a a very uh, well-known parable. Read through this one um, real quick. Isaiah chapter five, beginning in verse one, we read, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Here, Isaiah, he's he's speaking about the Lord as his, as his beloved. And he says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes, right? so, so God has planted this beautiful vineyard and he wants it to produce this wonderful fruit. And what happens? It, it yields wild grapes. Right? Verse three, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, Why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is clearly not something that's literal. God didn't come down and make a huge vineyard and he's he's looking around and go, where are all the grapes? It is a parable about the nation of Israel. And of course, Isaiah goes on to explain that very clearly. But even if we didn't have verse seven, like we should know what's being described there. God made his people to be a righteous, godly, fruitful people, and they produced thorns and thistles. So what's he going to do? He's going to destroy it. It's a prophecy about judgment. They're going to come under judgment. They're going to be exiled from the land. So you have have these things all over uh, the prophets where Again, the, 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 the form of the language is not to be interpreted literally, but again, as, as metaphor, as hyperbole, as, as parables, and usually the, the context can, can give you a pretty good indication of that. Uh, number three, another guideline, it's good to distinguish between what we might call conditional and unconditional prophecy some prophecy some prophetic messages are given as unconditional promises Um, obvious example of this genesis chapter 12 verses 1 to 3. Abraham is called by God God promises him specifically that he's going to have offspring he's going to multiply he's going to have a land all the nations are going to be blessed in Him, that, that that's a prophecy that that Abraham, try as he may, is not going to thwart in any way. Uh, even if his faith fails him, the promise of God will prevail. So you'll you remember, right? The story of um, uh, Hagar and, and and Ishmael. This is this is basically Abraham trying to fulfill. God's promises in his, in his own devices, because he just can't see at this time how these things are going to be since Sarah, his wife, is barren. <clears throat> Regardless of Abraham's poor choices and lack of faith in that occasion, God is going to keep his promise. That's an unconditional promise. However, on the other hand, some prophecy is, and, and especially, especially judgments, um, may be considered conditional. So, for example, consider the ministry of, of Jonah. The message that he's given is to go to Nineveh and to proclaim to them, in uh, 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the sum of his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Then what happens? Nineveh repents. And because they repent, God relents of the judgment. It is a warning that is given to them. It comes as a promise, like this is going to happen. And of course, hypothetically, had they not repented, in 40 days, they would have been destroyed. But the intention of the prophetic warning is to cause them to repent. And even Jonah knows that as he's delivering it. That's why he doesn't want to go, right? He just wants judgment to come to him. He delivers the message. It comes as a conditional warning. They respond properly in repentance and God relents of the disaster. So you do have um, prophetic messages that are given, uh, sometimes that are conditional and sometimes that are unconditional. The uh, the basic condition that is given for conditional prophecy is found, described for us in Jeremiah 18 and uh, verses 7 uh, to 10. Jeremiah 18, verse 7 10, we read, this is God speaking, He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Right? So it's, you know, if you, if you receive, what he's saying to, to the people there is if you receive a, a word from God, either a warning or a promise, and you don't heed it, the opposite's going to happen. right? If, if, um, if, if you... Uh, If you heed the warning, God will relent of his disaster. But if you presume on his promises and you just say, "Ah, the Lord said he's going to promise good to us. He's going to deliver us from our enemies. Let us go sin now. Well, then he's going to bring judgment. That's the basic idea here expressed in Jeremiah of the conditional nature of Prophecy based upon how the people respond to it. Sometimes the terrifying pronouncements of God's judgments are meant to awaken his people from their sleep and lead them to repentance. And I think as well, there's a a good lesson here, even for the modern church. Um, I think probably too often we concern ourselves with how a message might be received by human ears rather than whether or not it is accurate, faithful, and honoring to God. There have been several points, of course, in the church's history when real, genuine reformation and spiritual renewals have taken place And one of the things that has been common in all of these times is a trembling, convictional, and faithful preaching of the wrath of God. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that you've displeased God and you stand currently under his judgment. You go back and you look historically at these... These times in the church's history that have been marked by genuine revival, genuine works of God, genuine repentance among the churches and Reformation, they are preaching the whole counsel of God with conviction, with passion. You can think, for example, of uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, probably most famous sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, that, that. caused a reformation of sorts to take place in his church. You can think in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, on the day of Pentecost, after Peter has just preached to the Jewish people that they've crucified their Messiah, they are cut to the heart. Right? And you see the people repenting at that moment. Uh, one of my favorite... Um, pastors, who, who, who is uh, long since dead, Ichabod, Spencer, in his uh, pastor's sketches, he, he talks about all of these different occasions where he would be um, ministering and, and counseling certain people who were uh, either in unbelief or who were dealing with some sin. And there's one occasion in, in, in the book where he talks about this this young woman he he's he's preaching somewhere she comes to him and she tells him that she's she's been under conviction for so long you know the, the holy spirit has just brought conviction to her and she she has understood like she is so full of sin and he asks her you know well, well haven't, haven't you trusted in the lord and she's like no no i'm just i'm too wicked i can't and he tells her something to the effect this is not a direct quote but it, but he, he tells her well then for 3 weeks you've been resisting the holy spirit for three weeks. She's been having this conviction. For three weeks, then you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> I know, you know, in, in our day, if somebody comes and, and they're like, I'm, I am dealing with conviction of sin right now, you know, the, the, the first thing that, that a lot of people would want to do immediately is just to assuage the conscience. They go, well, you know, Jesus died for you. He saved you from your sins. You know, trust in Him and you're good. Well, that's not what Spencer did. Like, he he pressed the reality of conviction even deeper upon her conscience. That was one of the things that marked his ministry is he wanted to see as best as he could to, to see how the spirit was working within a person's heart and not to work against it, but to impress it all the more. And so he says to her, for, you know, for three weeks, you know, she, she's been dealing with this conviction. He says for three weeks, you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. He, he's he's not just trying to be nice. He's trying to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear on her conscience. Now, after he says that, he goes away. And later, it was about you know a month or so later, he's coming back through the town where where she was, and he finds out you know, she she has she's repented. She she has become a a believer genuinely. And, and she tells him that when he said that to her, she, she said, I thought you were the meanest man that I had ever met. And then she went home, and you know, kind of like this morning, right? She, she pondered in her heart. <laughs> and she thought more, and she realized that what he said was right. It was as if she was just swimming in her conviction and reasoning that this was a, a, a mark of the work of God and, and, and she couldn't get past it. Right? This, this, this work was sufficient enough. It was almost like um, just the, the presence of conviction was the mark of her, of, of her, uh, of her conversion, even though she had not um, trusted in the Lord. And Anyways, she, she had to realize that... that Her refusal to repent of her sin was her resisting of the Spirit. All that to say, when you have had these times in the past where works of reformation have taken place, you have had preachers who will preach the whole counsel of God, whether or not it offends people, Um, Or, or of course, builds builds them up. They're going to proclaim the whole thing. And, And this is the essence of the prophetic ministry. They had a word to proclaim, and they had no right to change it. They have to say exactly what God has given them to say, and entrust the fruit of that into the hands of God. One other thing, one other um, guideline for, for prophecy. Determine, as best you can, whether the prophetic predictions that you find in the Old Testament in particular are fulfilled or unfulfilled. Now, here, this is where the, the New Testament especially becomes a very... Important because it often tells us how many of these prophecies have been fulfilled or, or what prophecies still uh, await to be fulfilled. Uh, but I think we also need to recognize that sometimes within the same passage, events could be fulfilled at different times. Um, here's what I mean. If you look at uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, This is where you have a promise that is to take place in the days of the new covenant. promise of the Spirit being given to God's people. And if you'll notice, Ezekiel 36, and verse 24 and 25, we read here, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Part of this Part of this prophecy here is at least partially fulfilled after the return from exile. They go into exile. They're exiled for 70 years. The people of Israel are exiled for 70 years. They're scattered throughout the known world at the time. And then what happens? You read about it in Ezra, Nehemiah. God brings many of them Back into the land. Now that happens roughly around the years 500, 518 BC. Well, when does the Spirit, when is the giving of the Spirit taking place? Well, that's another 500 years later. Right? So you, you've got within the same passage prophecies which I would say, in one sense, have a partial fulfillment, because even in the days of, of Christ, there is a, there's a scattering of the, of, of the Jewish people throughout the Roman Empire, but there's a partial fulfillment of that in the return from exile, the, the Babylonian exile, and then there is an, an awaiting of the giving of the Spirit that is to come in the new covenant. That, that's, that's a 500-year difference. This is not Unique to Ezekiel either. Um, New Testament scholar George Ladd describes this as what he calls the prophetic perspective. And I tried to bring this out some when we were looking at Zephaniah as well. But often, of course, the prophets, as they are speaking about things that are to come in the future, they see it as one big mountain. And of course, the closer you get to the events that are going to unfold in the future, the more you realize uh, there, there's, there's several mountains here. Right? That's why you can have, even in the same uh, prophetic book like Isaiah, you can have you know, prophecies of, of the, the, the birth of the king and his, his eternal reign and yet his suffering. Right? Uh, you can have Jesus reading from the Isaiah scroll about the fact that he's, he's coming to, to preach good news and he stops short, of saying that he's, he's bringing God's judgment, Within the same prophetic perspective as they're looking at this large mountain of things that are to come in the future, you may have within the same passages things that have already been fulfilled and still things that are awaiting to be fulfilled. And so it can be helpful when you're reading through prophecy to to try and discern as, as best as possible. Usually, In light of the New Testament, what things have already taken place and what things await a fulfillment. So I'm going to stop there. Those are just a a few guidelines for interpreting prophecy. And then we'll, like I said, we'll we'll dive into some more of these uh, specifics uh, in the coming weeks. Let me uh, close this with a word of prayer. Father, again, we want to understand and know you better. We want to know the things that you have done, the words that you have fulfilled and kept. And we want to know the things that we are awaiting, the promises to come that encourage us, even now in the present, to pursue godliness, in light of the passing away of the present world and the coming of the new one. So Lord, give us minds, we pray, help us by the illuminating work of the Spirit to know your word and to believe all things that are written. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's uh, stand.